0: I'm Crystal Siracus. Welcome to Off the Page, the show featuring good books and good conversations with authors from our own region and from around the world. In 1963, Carol Denise McNair was one of four girls killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. The event shook the nation and was a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement. A year after that bombing, Lisa McNair was born. Her new book is called Dear Denise, Letters to the Sister I Never Knew. In it, she writes letters to her sister about her life, about growing up in the shadow of the bombing, about missing her, about her family, and more. It's a beautiful and vulnerable look at one family's legacy, and about growing up Black in the South during the Civil Rights era. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Your sister Denise was killed in the bombing at the 16th Street Baptist Church a year before you were born. And you write in your book that you've always known about this, that you don't remember a specific time when someone sat you down and told you about this event, that it was something that was just always part of your your life and of our nation's history. So I'm wondering... Did that make your childhood feel a little strange at times?
1: Uh, yeah, it definitely was strange. Uh, to have a sister that I never met, uh, uh, I never knew that that was very strange. Um, to have her have died in such a public manner, that also was very strange. So, um, yeah, it was just the whole thing was just odd. I mean. Because, I mean, you you come in most of the time, I guess for most people, you're just trying to be a regular person, go doing your day-to-day things, but, um, you know, we didn't really get to do that. You had to include that in your day-to-day stuff as well.
0: Was this event something that was always present?
1: Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there were days we didn't think about it, didn't talk about it, uh, but then there were times when it would come up. You know, definitely the anniversary of the bombing uh, would come up, the different year anniversaries in that, like the 20th anniversary, the 30th anniversary, the 50th anniversary. Black History Month, people want to know about it then. then. Uh, my dad was a state legislator and he, you know, was the first black state legislator here. So, you know, there was a lot of talk about it then. We just were in the news several times a year, every year it became normal for us.
0: You wrote this book as letters to Denise, which I thought was a really compelling way to to talk about your feelings, what your family went through, what you went through growing up. Where did you come up with that particular approach for the book?
1: I can't take credit for that at all. A friend of mine I was talking to when I got uh, kind of stuck one time and I was worried about getting the book out and finishing it up and I it seemed to be taking a while and we were having lunch and uh I was gonna ask her to be a ghostwriter just where I would dictate to her uh on a uh recorder and then she'd type it up for me and she quickly told me she didn't want to do that. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> um but uh she said why don't you write the book in letters to Denise because You never knew her and she, you know, she was your sister and you would tell her anything. So that's how I started. And it was like a light bulb moment. It just really began to float very easily after that.
0: You write a lot that you wish she had been around for all of these moments of your life. And there's a real sense of missing this sister that you never knew.
1: It would have been nice to have her just to, to never have had her. was just so it's kind of sad you know I guess if I'd had her and and known her and then she died that would have been sad but I would have had memories of being with her doing things with her laughing hanging out but I have none of that so that that that, that is a sadness there.
0: You write that after the bombing people in your community didn't really talk about it. You you referenced a culture of silence around this event. And I'm curious as to why wasn't it talked about more, especially since this event was so pivotal in the shift in the civil rights movement. You write that after the bombing, people in your community didn't really talk about it. You specifically mentioned this culture of silence around it. And I'm just curious as to Why wasn't it talked about more, especially because this was such a horrific but pivotal moment in the civil rights movement?
1: Well, I think um, everything has to be looked at contextually. Uh, And I think people are, are or you're looking at it as though it were today. At that point, you have to think about that point in history, Black people did not have the right to vote for the most part. Black people did not, could not be on juries. White people uh, could do anything to Black people and not be prosecuted and not be convicted. And we wouldn't, really didn't have a say in what happened to us. We just had to kind of roll with it and deal with it. So what would be the point of talking about it? Well, you know, we just turn it over to the Lord. I mean, there literally were no recourses for us, you know. Like people protest now, they call these lawyers and the national lawyers that help with civil rights cases and do stuff like that. Back then there wasn't nothing you could do. And black people knew that. We we knew that as a culture of centuries of of not having any victories in that area. So basically you just didn't talk about it because it was too painful to talk about. And why bring up something when you know there's nothing you could do you're hurting inside already, let's just move on. So Hmm. I believe that that's the main reason nobody really talked about it. Then when things, you know, did open up and began to get better, you know, it was not till 1977 that the first person was brought to justice. That was 14 years after Denise and other girls were killed. So it was just a process. It was easy to go through your day, handle your life without talking about
0: that. Do you think, especially for younger people today, that we just don't realize that just, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, life for Black people in the United States was so markedly different than what it is today in those things that you talked about, not being able to vote, not being able to have just basic human rights, you know, that might exist today, but it just seems like we've forgotten that this was not that long ago.
1: Right, right. I think we have forgotten that it was not that long ago. It's interesting, young people that I talk to and that talk back to me when I do public speaking all over the country, it's still shocking for them. They just can't imagine why that happened, how it could have happened and they can't imagine the racism thing either. I was talking to one of my white friends who said she was explaining this to her child. And she was like, the child was devastated. And it's like, so why? And she didn't know why. And she was like, some people just like that, you know, want to be mean. And she's like, so does that mean I can't be friends with so-and-so anymore? And the little kids started crying, you know, because they got a little black friend that they just adore. And um, it seems so foolish to them now, which I hope they will continue to always find this to be foolish, this next generation and those going forward. Um, I I really, it's it's a shock to them, you know, because it goes against everything you teach a child, you know, like be nice to people, love people, help people, be cooperative. Oh, yeah. And by the way, if they happen to be black, hate them. I mean, it just, it was always stupid. (laughs) Right. <laughs> now, nah, right. it just, it, it just uh, kids today, just, they they're having a hard time wrapping their head around it because it's so ridiculous.
0: I was very interested when you were writing about your experience. You went to school at the Advent Episcopal Day School, which was a predominantly white private school. And how that, it seems like kind of messed with your sense of identity as a Black woman.
1: Yeah, it did. It did. It really did.
0: <laughs> in what ways um, did, did that cause problems for you?
1: It caused a lot of problems for me. I think, um, you know, looking back on it in retrospect, you know, I have a totally different look on it now. But, yeah, it caused problems in that culturally I took on the persona and embraced the white culture because I was with kids at school who were predominantly white. All day, every day. Uh, I saw them in the morning. I was with them all day. I went home. I didn't get home till 5.30 because I went to my dad's office afterwards. He would pick us up from school because his office was in town and my school was in downtown Birmingham. And then we got home and we had a dinner and did the mounds of homework that you have at a private school. And um, I didn't see my friends except for on the weekends. And the kids my age in our neighborhood were few and far between. So, nine times I didn't see them at all. And I spent a lot of time reading books, reading the encyclopedia, world book encyclopedia, my grandmother had bought us, and playing with my dogs. And then I go to church, you know, for a couple of hours with your black friends, but you're in church. So, you're, you know, Sunday school, churching. So, the access to blackness, even though I lived in an all black neighborhood, my parents were black but culturally, I began to absorb and take on the white culture. And um, that caused a lot of problems because when I would have opportunities to be with family members, to be with neighbors, to be with friends, I didn't act like what other Black people were perceived to be Black. I didn't have the dialect. I had not have the conversation. Um, my world was very different. And even so to the fact that I didn't realize that there was racism because for me, there wasn't. It wasn't mm-hmm. that it didn't exist, but I lived in a bubble where I was a child of privilege, and um, everything black kid, white kids had for the most part, except money. We didn't never had that much money. Uh-huh, was you know my reality, and I didn't know that was taking place until it had already taken place, and then I didn't know how to go and undo it. And mm-hmm. so it caused a lot of problems.
0: What do you think was a, a turning point for you in realizing that 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 kind of cultural adoption perhaps um, had happened for you and that you wanted to to maybe change from that?
1: Uh, around the time you turned to be a teenager. Um, when I was going into high school, leaving the advent, leaving the bubble of the advent, you know people starting to date, going to parties, dancing, things that teenagers would normally do. You know, some of it was very different, you know, culturally black kids would just, for example, dancing. At that time, the white kids would do like the pretzel. And so you held both hands and you danced together was like a couple's dance. Mm -hmm. And that was how the dances I was learning at Advent. But the dances in the Black community at that time weren't touching unless you were doing a slow dance. And they were very different, you know. Uh, The music was very different. I would go to parties of of friends of my mother's and kids of my mother's friends. And I, I didn't have anything to talk about. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to dance. I would go to my best friend, Wendy, who was Black, and we became best friends since the first grade and she would be my connection to the race and help me. And so but what was tragic about that it was like, okay, that I got through that one experience, but then there's another day. And uh, it just became hard for me because in my little mind, my childlike mind, I figured I had to choose at one point. I had to be with white people or I had to be with black people with the, the crazy part about that is that you can't choose i'm gonna be black every day of my life and i just needed to figure out how to weave both of those cultures into one and that that was what what i needed to do you know another reason i wrote the book is for black people out there who maybe have gone through the same thing and they did decide not to measure them together but they decided to uh go with their white friends and ignore their blackness and deny it. Um, I really hope people like that will read my book because that's not helpful either. You've got to figure out how to merge them both. And you can't leave behind your blackness because at some point that means you hate yourself. And that's not good.
0: It also seems that, you know, maybe during the period you were growing up or earlier than that, that black people, black society almost had to embrace whiteness as a self-defense mechanism
1: right 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 we were actually acquired for the most part to assimilate so by assimilating not only did you not have an option to bring your blackness in it was frowned upon it was like the less black you could be the better you know straightening our hair wearing the clothes having the conversation listening to their music voting and uh uh you know talking like a lot of white people that went to school with me you know uh they would talk openly about how well you know black people are lazy and don't work hard or you're not like those people um you know so you get that and and so it almost brought up in your own mind that you were less than even though you know you aren't intellectually you know that but if every white person around you is treating you or those other Black people that they know as less than, you begin to think that I'm less than, too. The only thing that makes me different is I have all these white friends. And uh, that was not good either. That that, that, that was worse. I mean, the, the you know, I love, I see young kids today, and I think it's much more balanced. You know, they're allowed to be their authentic self being black is almost like cool now you know uh, <laughs> uh the white kids are embracing our stuff you know which is cool and it should work that way it should go back and forth and all the black kids should be able to be their authentic selves and the white kids be their authentic selves but everybody should be picking up something from the other person because the good on un- one race is also good in another race you know it doesn't really matter so yeah th- it was tough it was a tough time
0: I'd like to talk a little bit about the documentary, Four Little Girls. This is the documentary that Spike Lee directed about the bombing and spent a lot of time with your family and your family went through a lot of, you know, looking up photographs and talking about this. And you wrote in the book that it was during the filming of this documentary that you learned the most about Denise. Do you think that whole experience helped you and helped your family heal just a little bit?
1: Oh, yeah, I would say that. I would definitely say that. Um, It helped us to have dialogue, and not just my family, but all the families, and the whole city of Birmingham, uh, when you think about it. Because it wasn't just a cultural silence of me and the McNair household, but it was a cultural silence in the city. And I think Spike opened up some some caves that had been closed for years and emotions that people had never shared. Um, and I think it was very, very good and cathartic that we were able to do that.
0: I, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned that one of the bombers had been tried in 1977, but the others didn't, but it wasn't until after four little girls came out that the FBI reopened the case and charged Thomas Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry, and they were found guilty. Now, two of the bombers died before the charges were ever brought against them. Yes. And, yes. and again, it wasn't until the, you know, not in late 90s, mid-90s that the other two were charged. How how do you deal? How do you deal with this sense of bitterness over just how delayed this justice was for you, for your family, for your community?
1: Oh, uh, wow. Um, Yes, you just, it's just frustrating. But like I said, you have to take it in context for us, Black people in America, you understand very clearly that, at least at that time, the laws didn't work for you. They were not intended for you, they, and, and they, didn't, they weren't going to work for you. Um, and it sounds crazy to even say that out loud because as an American citizen, all the laws in America should work for me. Like they, they work for every white person and every other person of every race. But we almost grow to it and not expect it. So when it does work in your favor, it's just like a little gift. You know, we just Mama used to say that God would be our vindicator, and he will you know vindicate this situation for us. So, um, You know, we never really expected anybody to get convicted. You know, we just didn't think that it would happen. We're grateful that it did happen. So grateful to people like Doug Jones and Bill Baxley for bringing those all the killers to justice and, you know, doing the great legal work that they did. But you, I think it's a way of protecting yourself. If you don't expect anything, and then when you don't get anything, then you're not really hurt. And that's kind of how we had to look at stuff for a long time around here.
0: I think we see that injustice, though, still today.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I, I when uh, George Floyd's killer was convicted, I cried so hard. I cried almost as hard as I cried today that last killer was convicted of Denise and other girls because it was like oh my god like you know the system works for us it worked for us again it's almost like every time it works for us it's still a shock and it shouldn't be but but think about it like you said it's only been 60 years since Denise was killed and for most of that time it just um we just didn't matter. We didn't count. Justice for us did not exist.
0: You um, and your family got to meet President Obama. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that moment for you?
1: It was awesome. <laughs> I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed meeting him. He is a very kind a very genuine person. It, it was like a surreal moment to actually I kept pitching myself the whole day that we were going to do that. And um, when I walked up to the door to the Oval Office, um, he was standing there greeting all of us, all the families and people participating in the congressional gold medal um, sign, bill signing ceremony. And I had my hand ready to shake his hand and say, Hello, Mr. President. Thank you so very much for having us here today. We are very proud of you. and We are praying for you in Alabama. So I had him on those feet so I could say it. And when I got up to him, he just grabbed me and bear hugged me. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> oh, and I remember thinking, oh, he smells good. And I was like, oh, don't think that you got a wipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, and he just talked about what it meant to have me and Mama there and the sacrifice that our family made and how had none of that happened, he would not be here. I mean, he was just really gracious, really gracious.
0: What do you want to do next with both Denise's legacy and with your own?
1: Oh, wow. it's interesting. Well, I like, uh, I hope the book gets a broader reach. I really would like for a broader reach. I don't know. Um, I do talk about and share um, my life story, but I also share how we need to come together as people. And that's um mostly what I share about is how we need to break all the social norms that we have that keep us from being together and how we need to Show love to one another. Always remember that our humanity as human beings is where we need to lean when we deal with each other, and uh, don't worry about race or color, or ethnicity, or any of the that. But just remember, each person is a human being, and we got to treat each other. You do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Mama used to always say, and uh, we really remember that. We will be much better citizens of this country
0: even today when we seem so polarized do you still have hope that we can get there
1: i do i do um i mean i I totally get that there are some people out there who are nuts and they're going to be nuts to the day they die so i get that but um i think that there are more people out there who want to work together who want to have peace who want to have unity that if we reach across the aisles and reach uh, to our neighbors and really work hard to be uh, friends and, and close American citizens with one another. I mean, because I see it all the time. I see it with um, people I know. People, uh, I have a large white base of friends. I go to predominantly white Southern Baptist Church here in Alabama. Um, but I, I I see the hearts of people changing, and it's challenging for them. It's very challenging. And that I was talking with uh, someone the other day that, you know, there's a lot of things we always thought black white people knew, and that they don't know, and we always were pissed. Well, why why do they keep doing this? Don't they know? And then I'm finding out in the last six years, and I've actually had deep conversations with people. There are things that they weren't even aware of. Yeah, you know, y'all aware of that happened to us because you didn't learn it in school, nobody taught mm-hmm. it to you. In in a way, it seemed like a lot of our travails were just myths, but they weren't myths. And I think in coming from me, when our story is so broadly known and people do know my family, they're like, Okay, wait a minute. Let me rethink this. You know, maybe Papa and Mima didn't tell me what they should have told me, you know. Maybe you know when I heard them speaking the n word, I would I should have said something different. That hurts people. That will hurt people like my friend Lisa, and I love my friend Lisa. So stuff like that gives me hope. Uh, the young people give me hope because they're just all over the place. Um, you know they got friends that look like the rainbow. You know, um. We're marrying each other. I know so many interracial couples. And, uh, you know, you just can't be in that kind of space without having love for your fellow man. So I do have hope. But I I think we've got to keep having the conversations, keep having the talks, um, uh, keep sharing. Uh, We've got to keep doing that. And being in each other's spaces. We can't just... um, all go to all white things, live in a white neighborhood. We've got to branch out and um, like Brian Stevenson says, proximity is is everything. You know, he talks about mm-hmm. proximity and people being proximate to each other. You know, if you live near me or work near me or see me every day, that's gonna make it less difficult for you to hate me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And more and easier for you to care about what happens to me and to love me as or care about me as a human being. So we've got to stretch ourselves to have proximity. I tell um my groups all the time if you're when you think about who your best friend is, your person you tell all your secrets to, who's your very best friend in the world, in this old world that you just run to and who we'll go on a girls' trip or a guys' trip. And if none of those people are people of color or people opposite of your race, then your circle is too small. Mm -hmm. And you need to make a deliberate effort to open up your circle.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Sure, Sure. Thank you for having me. This was great.
0: Lisa McNair's book is Dear Denise, Letters to the Sister I Never Knew.
1: It was recently
0: listed by NPR as one of the books we love in 2022. You can find out more about the book and about Lisa online at SpeakLisa.com. Off the page is a production of WSKG Public Media. I'm your host and producer, Crystal Sarakis. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time we go off the page.